0: Welcome to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. Walking in the Promises is a ministry of God's grace expressed through the unfolding of his word. The following message is by our founder, Marcelo Tolopilo. We are going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses three and four. If I can refresh your memory just a little bit, Peter is writing to a suffering church. They were in the midst of the great turnip of the fire <clears throat> Not the great turnip, but the great uh, fire. The conflagration that was caused by Nero in 64 AD and extended itself really till the rule of Diocletian in the 4th century. So 250 years roughly of suffering. And the suffering was horrible. People were being crucified. People were being uh, sewn up in animal skins and thrown to ravenous dogs. They were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum later on. Nero, in his bizarre sense of fun and t- poor taste, would take men and women, nail them to a post, cover them with pitch, light them on fire, and use them as human torches for his garden parties. It was a rough day. And besides all this suffering, they were also suffering from the, the common afflictions that uh, affect all men. Christians get sick, right? Christians grow old. Christians suffer. Christians die. And one thing that Peter did last, last time we got together in verses 1 and 2, he wanted them to understand that their status as aliens and their status as God's chosen people were all, as it says in verse 2 at the beginning of that, beginning phrase, according to the foreknowledge of God. In other words, they were living and suffering within the scope of God's grace, his sovereign grace. He didn't want them to think at all that their suffering was due to chance or it was haphazard, didn't have meaning. It always has meaning for the child of God. But he was trying to get them to focus beyond their suffering to the great reality that God was in control of all of their suffering. Now, in verses 3 and 4, Peter's going to talk about, in essence, heaven. Our future hope. Our glorious hope. He not only wants these Christians to understand that they suffer within the context of God's sovereign grace, but that they suffer before the reality of a great and resplendent hope. This is not the end for us. This is just a sojourn. That's why they're called sojourners, aliens. And they needed to have this hope so that they could see beyond their suffering, right? I don't know if you've ever uh, taken off from Lindbergh Field, San Diego International Airport in May or June. But typically, when you do, what happens? You get all kinds of fog, right? The May, Gray, June, Gloom thing. It spills over into our valley a little bit. But it's really thick around the seacoast. And if you ever fly out of uh, Lindbergh Field, like I said, when you get there, you're just surrounded. You're in a cloud. You get in the plane... And the fog is so thick, it beads up on the window and then just runs down like rain. And then, of course, the pilot begins to taxi and takes that big old jet airplane and faces it west on the big runway, and he begins to barrel down the highway there, and uh, he gets going to about 150 to 180 miles per hour, and the fog is just... Raining, streaking across the plane, and then you take off, and it, then there's some turbulence because you're in the middle of the cloud. But what happens after about 10, 12, 15 seconds of that turbulence and that fog? Poof. Right? You pierce through the clouds. And what's there? It's sunshiny, it's blue. The light is dancing. The light of the sun is dancing off those clouds and there's different hues of golden and brown and gray and white. And it's absolutely—it's invigorating. It affects you emotionally, right? And then as you continue climbing, you're still heading west over the Pacific. Then you, you bank and you start coming back east, unless you're going to Hawaii. But you come back around and you're climbing an altitude and you look down at what seemed like an eternal fog... And you see that what you were in is really just a regional deal. It's limited to the coast. As you go inland, it's not there. And you know that by noon that day, that fog will be burned up. The sunshine will absolutely dissipate it to nothing. You'll have a little bit of haze. Now what's happened when you experience that? Have you, by the sheer power of your own will and might made the fog go away. It's still there, isn't it? What's happened? You've gained perspective. You see that it's not a forever fog. That it's just a limited thing. And it's consequences. And that's what Peter's trying to do here. He's trying to set our hope before us so that we'll see that this suffering and the hardness of life is not all there is. There is a future hope that is glorious. And that hope is precious. It's exceedingly important. Without it, we crash and burn. Without it, joy is crushed under the burden of our suffering. We need to keep our hope clearly in focus. Sartre in his play, No Exit, which is about hell, implies that hell begins where hope ends. And certainly hell is much more than that because it's a real place. It's a dimensional place. It has space and time. But we could certainly characterize hell as an eternal hopelessness, an eternity without hope. And Satan doesn't want people to have hope. Guys, he, he has no hope. He's doomed. He's damned. The cross took care of that. The resurrection took care of that. We celebrated that last week. But he wants to drag as many people, as many souls as he can with him, down to the pit of hopelessness and he's got many effective tools and weapons in his arsenal to rob people of true hope. He wants to infuse people, no matter what it is, with the opiate of false hope. It can be the the sense of doing good and providing for widows and orphans but you're not a believer but you're doing that and it feels good, you're doing a mitzvah, It's, it's, it's rewarding. But if that's your hope, doing good, you're damned. It can be as evil as being a serial killer. If he gets you to buy into that and stay in in that, you're, you're damned. He has many, many tools. Let me just give you some broad categories because I think this will help us classify what we're talking about. But he has, for example, the tool and the weapon of false religion, right? There are many false religions. We think of some of the the main ones. Each one of them, by the way, has a different Jesus, a different Jesus than the one in the Bible. And there's the the God of Mormonism, who is just merely a man, a deified man. And Mormonism encapsulates and and surrounds some 17, 16 million people, 16 plus. The Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower is about 8.5 million. But it's any hope, any religious hope that is outside of Jesus Christ is damnable. There are false religions. There's also, you know, more and more people are not falling for organized religion, but people are embracing a self-styled religion, an intuitive religion, where people have an epistemology that says, well, what I feel is right has to be right. It's Debbie Boone. How can it be wrong when it feels so right? It's, it's an intuitive religion. If you buy that instead of Mormonism or instead of some Middle Eastern or, uh, you know, Indian philosophy, some animist philosophy, they're both damnable. There's also the false hope of materialism, right? Just keep pushing. Try harder. There's, there's, there's happiness just outside of your reach, you know, keep pushing. There's another job, another promotion, uh, more money, uh, more prestige, more accolades, just around the corner. It's the proverbial dangling carrot, right? And people make that their God. They can Just keep pushing. Never mind if you have to sacrifice your family to do it. Just work harder. There's more satisfaction for you when you're independently wealthy. By the way, you remember the immortalized words of... Nelson Rockefeller, when he was asked, how much money does it take to make a man man happy? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. A billionaire, just a little bit more. It doesn't have to be money, though. Materialism can be accolades. It can be achievement. It can be winning. Tom Brady. (laughs) Tom Brady. He's a good, he's a soul. He's won five Super Bowls. Hats off to the Philadelphia Eagle fans here. I don't think we have Ish with us. We have Darnell, though. They took one away from him. Oh, there he is. You bet. Hats off to the Eagles. Fly, Eagles, fly, until they meet the Rams next year. And then Hopefully we'll pluck your bird there. But anyway. No, no. Just, I love That's friendly banter here. Tom Brady is another thing not so friendly there. No. But he's won five Super Bowls and four of those he's been the MVP. He won not last Super Bowl but the previous Super Bowl the one before that, Super Bowl 51 and he was the MVP. And as he was on the field yet, the guy hadn't even showered a reporter stuck a microphone in his face and said, Tom, which is your favorite Super Bowl win? You know what he said? The next one. That's materialism. Keep climbing that ladder of success. And the thing is, we are never satisfied by that. It's just a black hole. And then, when none of those work, there's what I've I've termed, and this is my own term here, but I've called it, there's practical existentialism. That's ultimately the thought, pardon me, that says, just seize the day. Carpe diem. Whatever turns you on, pursue that. It'll be okay at the end. Just go for what you want. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Uh, I think Nike used to say, just, just do it. You know, that's, that's a false hope. Don't think about now. Don't think about death. Don't think about eternity. Don't think about consequences. Don't think about heaven. Just, just satisfy yourself right now. This is, of course, fed in a ubiquitous, ubiquitous way by, by the media, especially music. You know, you can find a song to suit your philosophy of life. In fact, I've also termed this the Hakuna Matata syndrome. <laughs> because it's, it's no worries. It's, it's a problem-free philosophy. Just do what you want, and that'll make everything okay. Bobby McFerrin, be happy, don't worry, right? And listen, I love those guys. Pumbaa and Timon, they're high priests. <laughs> they're hymnologists, Bobby McFerry. He's fabulous. He's so talented. And Pumbaa and Timon, who, who can argue with that? A Jewish little muskrat in and in a pig. At Best friends. <laughs> of course. It's wonderful. But if you buy into that philosophy, hey, no worries. You know, it's a problem free life. There's no consequences. I'm just going to live my life for me, however I want. Everything will be okay at the end. And we affirm each other with this coexistence, right? Coexist. We're telling each other, that's, that's good. Whatever is true for you is true for you. It's like watching a guy fall from the 20th floor. And this other guy has happened, happens to be watching it from the 10th floor. And as he passes you by, you say, or he says, hey, So far, so good. (laughs) Don't let that fast approaching asphalt worry you. It's just think light thoughts, hakuna you know, be happy, don't worry. It's not so much the fall, it's the landing that'll kill, right? And you can find, like I said, a song to suit your particular philosophy or people do. Um, I remember back years ago now, in the 80s, early 80s, to mid-80s, there was a, a big hue and cry in some sectors of the church about something called backmasking. Did you ever hear about backmasking? <laughs> backmasking was the supposed secret messaging in like LPs and tapes, but backwards. It would be coded backwards. And I remember being at a convention back in the 80s, and there was a vendor for, is was the, the Greater Los Angeles Association of Sunday Schools. Uh, it was just for curriculum and stuff for Sunday school. And I was there, I went to the vendor for, floor and to hear some of the speakers. And uh, there was a guy with a booth for back masking. You know, the, you would come to your church and speak and do whatever. And I, I was curious, so I had to ask him. So I said, so um, help me understand. So the message that plays Forward, the one that espouses violence against women, against cops, or that espouses an illicit lifestyle, or drugs, sex, and rock and roll, or that espouses eating puppies. So that stuff is okay. You just have to worry about hearing backwards the words, Hail Satan. And he played it for me, and he could—I forget what it was. I think it was a Bee Gees. And I he played it for me, and I heard Hail Sutton. <laughs> and I—I I said I don't think he said Hail Satan. I think he said said Gail Sutton. And that was like my third grade teacher, and she was a Southern Baptist. She was a. But listen, it, it's the forward message, and you say, "Well, Marcelo, I'm in the clear because I don't listen to you know Eminem and." Uh, uh, or some of Lady Gaga or, you know, uh, whomever. I don't know who's popular now. I just, I'm too old. But there's, you know, Miley Cyrus. You know, I don't listen to that stuff. I don't. I listen to Barry Manilow. Heaven forbid, right? No, I listen to Bobby McFerrin and, and uh, Frank Sinatra, right? I'm okay. I don't buy that That hatred message. But listen, if he can get you to listen to buy into Barry Manilow's I did it my way. Or excuse me, that's Frank. Uh, you know, Two ships that pass in the night and all that that uh, talks about. Or be happy, don't worry. Or I did it my way. Regardless of which false hope a person buys into, if they die without their hope and faith firmly fixed on Jesus Christ as the Savior of their soul, they will perish. Regardless of which false hope they buy into, and people, I'm convinced that most of the world will perish to the tune of their favorite false hope. Satan's got a million of them. We Christians are enticed by false hopes continually. And while we can't lose our salvation, we can buy into false hope like materialism. And when trials hit, and believe me, trials are inevitable in life. When trials hit, false hopes disintegrate. And people's lives are devastated. Peter wants to give us a view of our real hope. And it's that glorious inheritance that awaits us. That finalized salvation. Our glorification. And it's that unfading hope that protects and builds our faith in the midst. Of suffering. And it begins with verse 3. Let's, let's read verses 3 and 4 of 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Quite the couplet of verses here, guys. And in this future hope, this future salvation, the, the, the culmination of our salvation, as Peter considers this, as he begins to describe it, he breaks out in a song of praise. The word blessed, you excuse me, eulogatos, means to speak well. It's for the word from which we get our word for eulogy. As he considers our great salvation, he breaks out in a hymn of doxology, a hymn of praise. He can't help it. I'm convinced this was spontaneous. He starts to write, and the Spirit of God tells him, write, blessed. Blessed be the name. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Peter, our future salvation evokes in him Praise to God. Because he's awed. He's blown away. Guys, have you ever been overwhelmed by the thought of your salvation? By what it means? By what God has done, whom he has made you, what he has in store for you? Have you ever been struck by awe? Have you ever been struck by awe, the awe of nature? We're big, uh, big, big national parks guys in in our home. And we thank God that, you know, Teddy Roosevelt had the sense of of mind and presence and presidents after him to set aside public parks so that generations like us can enjoy them. But one of our favorites happens to be uh, Glacier. Been there dozens of times. Actually, it's called Waterton Glacier International Peace Park. There's a name is assigned by committee, right? Just like a horse designed by committee is called a camel. But anyway, regardless of its cumbersome name, it is a beautiful place. And it's the crown of the Rockies, and there's there are spaces of glacial valley that have been carved out, and you see the mountains, and you see the valley, and you see the waterfalls, and you see the bears and the moose and everything walking around there, and it's Overwhelming. I'm I'm awed. Maybe you've been awed by seeing the the Milky Way and and a crystal, you know, dark night, maybe up in Joshua Tree or somewhere in the desert where it's clear. I've been awed, you've been awed by nature. But think of its its beauty and it's it's so vast. In fact, we we can't even number it, right? We can't quantify it, it's so great. But it's so awe-inspiring, and yet all of it, the vast cosmos, was literally brought into being by a Word of God. In fact, Psalm 8.3 says it's the finger work of God. It's no big deal. You've heard me talk about this before, right? Remember when you were a kid in kindergarten, and you did finger painting, and they put that little smock on you so you wouldn't get paint on your britches and I remember me and my buddies, you know, all our little smocks look like little tiny priests and stuff. And I never heard one of my buddies say, Oh, I'm done with this, but I'm so winded. <laughs> Man, I could sure use a snack and a nap. I hope they're rolling out the pads now, because I'm, they're yoga mats, because we didn't have yoga mats back then. Because I'm so, I hope they give us a break before they have us, you know, start stringing the beads. This is, this is child labor laws. You never hear a kid talk like that. Why? Because it's not a big effort, it's a creative effort that just flows out. When God made everything, he said, "This is it." And yet Psalm or excuse me, Isaiah 52:10 tells us that for God to accomplish salvation, he had to bear his holy arm. He had to roll up his sleeves for that one. He had to exert his power, his great, great power for salvation. And so he sent the second person of the Trinity, his son, God himself, to to intervene and to be injected into human history where he grew up, lived a perfect life, where he went to the cross, bearing our sin as our substitute, where he suffered the wrath of God for that sin, where he was killed, and then he was buried, where he rose again from the dead, and now ascends on high. God had to roll up his sleeves for that. And guys, that's where true power is. It's in the transfer of a human soul from the domain of darkness, Colossians 1.13, to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's, that's quite an awesome display of power. It's not even in the greatest physical miracle. Don't look for God's power in the physical miracles. The greatest physical miracle ever created was the creation of the cosmos out of nothing, ex nihilo. That's just God's finger work. For God to save a person, he had to bear his holy arm. You know, it's interesting to make a grocery list description of who and what we were before Christ. Have you ever done that? I have. I have. And it just so happens I have the list right here. Hmm. Listen, th- this is not an exhaustive list, okay? But Romans 5.8, for example, says that we were sinners. This says, you're, you're sinners. That's all we were before Christ. Isaiah 64.6 puts it this way. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. Excrement stained garments. That's the best that we could produce. We were sinners, Romans 5.8. As a result of that, two verses later, Paul tells us that we were enemies of God. Because we stayed in our sins, because we refused to submit to his plan, to his will for us through Jesus and the cross, we were hostile to God. I don't care if you were the son of Sam or Mother Teresa, every human being born has been born a sinner and is hostile to God. In Ephesians 2:2, 2, 2, Paul adds that we were ruled by Satan. Think about that: The prince of the power of the air, the usurper of God's authority here on earth for a time. God is allowing it. We have a different boss. We have the true king as our now as our king. but we were under the, the rulership, the domain. The rule of Satan, Ephesians 2.2. And we, as we said, we were in the domain of darkness. As a result of that, Ephesians 2.1 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. In the dark. Condemned. Hostile to God. Consequently, verse 3 of Ephesians 2 says that we were children of wrath. We weren't children of God. But children of wrath, with the wrath of God abiding over us, ready to crush us. Verse 6, or so the sixth thing in Romans 5.6, it tells us that we were also helpless. We were all those things with the greatest being in all the universe as our enemy, and we were helpless. That is impotent, powerless to do anything about our situation. Romans 5.6. And then Paul sums it up with this phrase. He says, having no hope, this is Ephesians 2.12, having no hope and without God in this world. That's a summary of our existence. In other words, without Christ, we were dead, damned, helpless, and hopeless. Until, that is, God intervened. God intervened when we were helpless and hopeless and through the cross of Christ, redeemed us. Blessed be God, right? Blessed be God. That's a two-hander. Blessed be God. And Peter blesses God for this great salvation he gives us here. As he describes what our future hope looks like, he gives us seven reasons why we can praise God for our salvation. And don't worry, we'll go through that a lot faster here. Seven reasons. In fact, I'm going to give you a homework assignment for this week, guys. I want you to note each one of these reasons to praise God, to bless God for our salvation. And I want you to meditate on those this week. Think about Him, because the Holy Spirit will reveal things to you that He didn't to me, that are true, that are founded in the Scripture. And let His praise fill your mouth. Peter blesses God. Blessed be the God and Father of our, Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again. You can stop right there. He praises God, first of all, because we have a hope obtained by mercy. We have a hope obtained by mercy. We hear much about grace as well we should. But mercy makes grace possible. It is the logical priority to grace. Grace. How have you had the word grace defined to you? God's what? I heard it somewhere out there. Unmerited favor, right? Grace is getting what we don't deserve. God's love, forgiveness, His peace, so many good things. But mercy is not getting what we do deserve. In other words, we were in the direct line of God's wrath You know, right there, right in the sights, right in the crosshairs. And for God to bless us with his grace, first of all, he had to redirect his fierce wrath. And he poured that out on whom? On Jesus Christ, his beloved son, who bore our sin, who shouldered our guilt. And then, having done that and satisfied his justice, God poured on us his lavish grace, his peace, his love, his kindness. His patience, his forbearance, our adoption as sons, so much. We are lavished with grace, Paul says in Ephesians 1. But the reason we are lavished by grace is because we have a hope that is obtained by mercy. God didn't give us what we deserved. Secondly, Peter says that we can praise God for this great salvation because we have a living hope. A living hope. This is not pie in the sky, make-believe stuff, guys. This is an eager, confident expectation of the life that is to come. He's talking about a dynamic, confident hope that grows and matures and and mellows and becomes richer with age, like a fine wine. We have a living hope. And that's why you often see this hope so alive. And of all people, the most elderly saints. You know, Lisa, you, you probably see this with the dear saints that you visited. What's the name of the home? Sun City, Gardens. Sun City Gardens. You know, these people, some of them are closer to passing away, obviously, than we are. We don't know. We could go in a, you know, on the way home. But these people... Have a real resplendent hope that they can almost feel because they're closer to it. It's a dynamic hope. I've told you about my dad when I lost him just four years ago, but my dad was a pastor for 50 years and a lovely, godly man. He lived with us for many years, he and mom, until the Lord took him home. And, uh, you know, watching him die was such a blessing the last two months, especially when he was so weak. But like three days before he died, I think I've told you the story. He, he told me that in his very thick Polish, Argentine accent, today the Lord take me home. And we all are going, oh, okay, he's a man of God. It's like No arguing with that, it's like, okay. And he didn't, the Lord waited a couple more days. He missed it by a couple. He was pretty close, though. It's kind of like hand grenades. It's pretty close. But I remember he fell asleep that night, and um, he awoke the next morning, and I was by his bedside. And he looked at me, and he said, You still here? (laughs) He goes, I know in heaven. (laughs) I hope you don't think you're at the other place, because... uh, But he said, Marcelo, and he told this to my wife and children, for to me, since God gave him another day to live, he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Guys, it's a real hope that those who are closer to, to it can taste, can feel. It's a living hope. Don't look for hope, guys, on the deathbed of the unbelieving because you'll either find hopelessness Or false hope, and the two equate to the same thing at the end. One of the most notorious butchers of our last century of of mankind's history, really, was Joseph Stalin. He killed, they estimate, in the neighborhood of 20 to 25 million people. That means you take everybody in the state of Florida, everybody in the state of Colorado, you put them on a field and you kill them all. I mean, it's staggering, isn't it? And after he died, Newsweek magazine did an interview with his daughter, Svetlana Stalin, who was there when her dad died, and she had this to say about she had no, no qualms about how evil her dad was. But she said and this is from Newsweek quote, "My father died a difficult and terrible death. God grants an easy death only to the just. Now, that's not true. Being crucified upside down does not count as an easy death, right? Death is never easy, but she was trying to understand what her dad went through. She said, at what seemed the very last moment, he suddenly opened his eyes and cast a glance over everyone in the room. It was a terrible glance, insane or perhaps angry and full of the fear of death, Then he lifted up his left hand as though he were pointing to something up above and bringing down a curse on us all. The gesture was full of menace. The next moment, his spirit wrenched itself free of the flesh. He had no hope. You compare that with the death, the approaching death of Deal Moody. This is what he told a friend. Now, this has been, I've heard this was attributed to Billy Graham and... You know, preachers like me, like Billy Graham, like Moody, we steal from everybody, okay? So Moody died in 1899, so he precedes Dr. Graham's death by a good 119 years or so. But uh, he said this, he told a friend, knowing that he would soon die, he said, quote, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? He says, at that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement into a house that is immortal, a body that sin cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned into his glorious body. He was looking forward to the resurrection. He said, I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. Martin Luther said this about death. He said, our God is the God from whom comes salvation. God is the Lord by whom we escape death. When did Luther say that? In the prime and vigor of life? At a theological conference somewhere? Luther said that while he he lay dying. This is the way Paul described death. Philippians 1.23, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You know what the word depart means? It means to unravel, it means to loose. In other words, to be set free, to be untied. Same way he uses it in 2 Timothy 4.6, the time of my departure, my release, is at hand. Guys, it is a living hope. It is a real hope that we can anticipate as time goes by. It is also a hope that is sure. It is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, right? A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is based on an historic event witnessed by hundreds of people, the living Lord, uncontested by hundreds of enemies, given to us in a scripture by a God who cannot lie. It is a sure hope. It is not fanciful. It is sure. Fourthly, it is imperishable to obtain an inheritance, Peter says, which is imperishable. Imperishable. That is, it's not subject to the wear and tear of decay. It's not subject to the second law of thermodynamics. What in the world do you know like that here? Right? Everything is breaking down. Everything is perishing. Have you ever noticed, for example, that our cars perish? Now, we don't like to use those terms. I mean, the word, second law of thermodynamics and the word perishing and imperishable, it's terrible for marketing. So we try to to spin it. It's like, have you ever run into a, a perishable car lot? No. It's a used car lot. Or gently owned car lot. Or lovingly owned couch. (laughs) You know, lightly used furniture. Or from our friends in the real estate industry, they always tell us, hey, it's a (laughs) fixer-upper. What are they saying? They're saying the thing is rotting. And you're going to spend a lot of time at Home Depot and spend a lot of money there. Everything perishes, everything breaks down. I remember buying my Val and I a brand new Honda Accord in 1991. It was teal green. It was beautiful. You should have seen it 90,000 miles later after three kids. <laughs> Didn't even smell new. But that's the way of the world, right? We buy things, we have things. Everything around us is perishing our houses crumble, our wealth vanishes, our bodies break down, but our inheritance is and will remain imperishable. It is built to last for an eternity. It will be forever new, forever bright, forever fresh. And to borrow Bobby Zimmerman's word, Bob Dylan, forever young. You know, I I thought of something just the other day. I was reading John 14, and Jesus says to his disciples, look, I'm going away. But in my father's house, there are many dwelling places. And I go away to prepare a place for you. Were it not so, I would not tell you, he said. Believe me, I go to prepare a place for you. And I thought, Jesus, the agent of creation, created everything, the cosmos, with a word, with a wave of his fingers. But he's been working on our eternal home for 2,000 years. Must be a nice place. It's imperishable. Forever new. Fifthly, our inheritance is also undefiled. I just love this. That means it's unpolluted by sin. There is nothing, mark it, nothing. Listen to me carefully. Nothing unworthy in it of God's full approval. It is completely untarnished by sin. And I love that. But I can't quite wrap my, my arms and my brain around that because I still live in a body of unredeemed flesh. And I'm tainted by sin. I sin every day. I have to repent every day. But my inheritance is completely holy. In fact, the word undefiled is used one other place in Scripture, Hebrews seven twenty six, to speak of the moral character and sacrifice of Jesus Christ as our high priest. That's how untainted our future is. And I know that when I walk into that future, into that hope, I will be equally holy. I can't wait for that. It is undefiled. Sixthly, he says that our hope is unfading, that will not fade away. A few verses down the line in 1 Peter 1.24, he says, All flesh is like the flower of the grass, the grass wither, withers, the flower falls off. You know, the flower of the grass lasts even less than the grass, right? You have the grass, then the flower blooms and it dies very quickly and then goes back to the ground the grass remains for a little bit. We're like the flower of the grass. We fade away. Where is the glory of last centuries or this century's great men? At best, It is a fading memory in the minds of a fading generation. Who was Bernard Montgomery? You know who he was? He was the general of the Allies in North Africa who drove out the Nazis, the Rummel, Rummel, the desert rat. It was a huge turning point in World War II. He was a great hero. We have trouble even remembering who he was. I remember seeing a, a screenshot of Ronald Reagan addressing both houses of Congress Union of the State, uh, State of the Union address somewhere, somewhere down the line. And um, there he was, and to his right behind him was George Bush, who was vice president and would one day be president. To his left was Tip O'Neill, the Speaker of the House, a very powerful Democrat uh, man. And I looked at that picture, and I was just struck by the fact that Reagan passed away from Alzheimer's. He was just a shadow of his former great self. George Bush is barely hanging on to life as a very aged man. And Tip O'Neill died of a heart attack back in 1994, I believe it was. And I thought, those men were the most powerful in the world. Their time has come and gone. It's fading. Now they're a memory. I remember we were going up to Northern California. I believe the Cobbs went up to Monterey this week. But uh, we were going up to Monterey as well, I believe, and Val and I and the kids in tow, and we stopped in San Simeon because we were going up Highway 1, and that's where Hearst Castle is, right? And uh, he's a fascinating historical figure to me, very powerful, extremely wealthy man, very powerful. He owned the, the biggest chain of newspapers, and back before the internet, newspapers was, was where you got your news. Really, <laughs> pulp from trees. <laughs> he also owned the biggest communication company in the United States, perhaps in the world, Hearst Communications. Powerful man. He said, cover this, people would cover it. He was a big socialite too. He liked to throw parties, all costume parties. And we, we went up to the little museum, to the visitor center. We didn't take the tour of the actual house in San Simeon. It's all deeded over to the state. It's a state park. And it, it was never finished, so it's still being built. The man's been gone for, I don't know how long, but it, his house is still being built. And we walked around the museum visitor center, and it was full of artifacts that he had collected, you know, works of art and expensive furniture. And there were pictures of him and his social gigs all over the place, always, you know, wearing some kind of silly outfit. And with two or three starlets hanging off his arms. And he was kind of, I don't want to be disrespectful, but he was kind of like not the most handsome of people, of men. He's Kind of doughy. And I, no disrespect, but I mean, that's who he is, was. And as I looked at all this stuff and walked around that museum and looked at him, I began to feel so uncomfortable. And I realized I was being overwhelmed by a sense of... of Shame and pity. Shame because he didn't act like a person becoming Christ likeness. Pity because all this wealth, all this posturing, all this power, and it doesn't matter now. I, I remember thinking this man will one day have to stand before God at the great white throne judgment. And by the way, God will not be one whit impressed by whom he knew, what he did, what he owned. And if he stands before God, unless he stands in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is white great white throne judgment, he won't. That's the judgment of sinners. He will stand impoverished morally before a God that demands absolute moral wealth, perfection. The glory of, of men is fading and does not help them. You know, Howard Hughes, the once aggressive, powerful entrepreneur, died a deranged, unclothed recluse whose billions were worthless to him in the last 10 years of his life, let alone after death. Our inheritance, guys, is unfading. There will be no monuments in heaven, no libraries, no scholarships, no statues, no foundations dedicated to our former glory because it is and will remain unfading. Lastly, and very quickly, it is also certain. It says in verse 4 reserved, that our inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. Listen, it was rooted in eternity past by God's sovereign choice and foreknowledge. Verses 1 and 2. It has been brought about by his causative mercy, apart from our works, verse 3, and it is root or reserved in heaven for you. And we talked about this tense last week. This is a perfect tense, a perfect part, passive participle. This means this. The perfect tense in the Greek means an action that is completed and has ongoing power or efficacy. What's more, it's in the passive voice, which means that this reserving was not done by us, but was done for us, who did it? God. So our great inheritance, our hope, was reserved by God for us, remains that way and will continue that way until the Lord gives it to us at the end of time. We can't mess this up, guys. See, that's heaven's perspective. That's our hope, guys, in a very quick way. (laughs) You need to review that. You need to mull that over. You need to think it over and allow God's Spirit to, to move your heart with it. That's heaven's perspective. We get too wrapped up in the events, the joys, the sorrows, the difficulties of this life sometimes. And we're, we're fooled by what one person called the illusion of permanence. This is just we're here for a short time. Just, we're sojourners here, inviting people to come with us on our sojourn, and then after a little while, we pack everything up and go to heaven. You ever play Monopoly? What do you do when the game is over? You put all the little pieces back in their little places, the money, the properties, the moving pieces, the houses, the hotels, regardless of who won, it all goes back in the box, and you fold up the board you put it in the box and then you put the lid on it and you put it away <laughs> in your garage or your, your closet. That's a metaphor for life. But we will inherit a hope, an inheritance that is obtained by mercy. It is a hope that is living, it is sure, it is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and is reserved by the powerful hand of God for you and me. That's our hope. Let's fix our eyes on that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your great, great mercy in giving us salvation. We thank you that this is a real hope. It's not make-believe, but it's a hope that actually transforms us in the midst of life, in the midst of our pilgrimage. Lord, I pray that we would just see it more clearly and serve you with a willing heart because of it. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. You've been listening to the podcast of Walking in the Promises. If you would like to learn more about our ministry or invite Marcelo to speak, visit us online at WITP.org.